Welcome back to another episode of the Cold Shower Podcast. We have a special alumni edition. It's been a while since we've checked in. A lot of things have happened um, for you, Uncle Jim, I think personally, and then also just you continue to rack up the adventures. So I wanted to to have you kind of update people with where you're at in life right now. And then from there, we'll talk about one of your latest hunts, which I think would be, which would be pretty fun. Well, number one, it's glad to be back. Glad to be back. And number two, it's good to be back with my nephew. That's, that's like a, a double, double dose for me. Yeah. And then trying to think the, our, our last podcast was, uh, 19 or, tw- uh, I think it was 2018. Oh, was it 18? I think so. In Traverse city. Yep. In the hotel there. Yes. We were doing the podcast, people moving chairs around and all that good stuff. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That was episode, I think it was episode 16 and now this will, when this comes out, it'll probably be 112. So we've been working. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, it's good to be back. And yeah, it's, uh, if it was 18, oh my goodness. I mean, it's, it's amazing how, how fast, how fast life goes by. Right. Um, the biggest, the biggest news I could share is the fact that January 1st of 2021, I stepped down as the CEO of Interlink, uh, mortgage, um, services, LLC. Um, and promoted uh, a longtime business partner, our president and COO, Chief Operating Officer Gene Thompson. Uh, he was promoted to president and CEO. Uh, I will remain on as the, obviously the um, majority shareholder of the of the organization, uh, chairman of the board. But the truth of the matter is, is that there's a there's a point in time where you know, you do your best, the best that you can in your career to surround yourself with exemplary people. And I've always prided myself on, it do, It didn't take me long to understand that I wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed of the organization. And we had the uncanny ability to surround ourselves with some incredibly gifted employees. I mean, we started this venture in, June of 2004, uh, Taylor with four people. And today we've got over 500 professionals at this organization. We used to do business in one city, Houston, Texas. Now we're licensed in 22 states. My point is, is that as you watch these individuals fulfill their career and where they are and where they're going, there's a point where your executive leadership team has bigger goals than I did. Mm. So then you have, you have a real decision to make. Do you bring their goals down and push forward with your own agenda, um, which would be contrary to the way we've always ran the organization. Um, for me, it was a lot of inspect what you expect. I understand these goals are, those are big. They're what they call them, BHAG, big, hairy, audacious goals, right? Validated them, talked to them about them. Are they measurable? Are there metrics and process behind them? And then I knew, I knew when I was on vacation in July of, June, July of 2020, that this organization would have a higher probability to go further with the unbelievable leadership that we had than I could take of myself. Then the question is, are you going to get to let your ego out of the way? 
Because the number one thing that can bring down an organization quicker than anything else is when egos start playing. And I'm so proud of them because to see them grow and blossom, it's kind of like a forest when you, uh, you know, the forest grows like crazy and you come in and you have some deforestation where you go and you take out certain mature trees, right? And some people may frown upon that. But the truth of the matter is, is that the forest grows uh, exponentially more once you remove that. It's just like the Lord says. You know, nobody likes to be pruned. <laughs> the Lord says, you know, <laughs> I, I, I'm the vine. You're the branches. And I'm going to prune you. That's painful. We've all been pruned. I know I have. Um, but there hasn't been a single time that I've been pruned by the Lord where I've liked it. It's always... It's, it's no fun. I'd rather you be pruned than me be pruned and you tell me how difficult it is, right? But it's like any, any tree or shrub. You prune it. You look in the mirror, it's embarrassing. But you just, you flourish. And that's been the organization ever since the new leadership team has taken over. Yeah. I, as someone that has recently gone into business for myself, a question I want to ask is, I think it's really easy when you're starting a company or, or starting a business for yourself where you, you have a lot of quiet, like you're trying to figure out and, and look at the landscape and things are calm because you haven't yet entered, you know, the choppy waters. And so you're able to really set your mission and your values um, because things haven't gotten crazy yet. How do you, how are you able to always revisit those, that mission and those values once you know, rubber hits the road and things start getting a little crazy because personally, you know, I have these, have these things that I said, I want to prioritize. I'm not even a year into owning my own business and I can already sense that sometimes I'm slipping up on some of those things, those things that I said, I want to be rooted in. Um, and it's nothing catastrophic obviously, but, um, just making sure that I don't get so caught up in the day to day that I forget about what I'm supposed to be grounded in. How often do you have to remind yourself of stuff like that? All the time. I mean, it's, you know, what I'm a firm believer, what gets measured gets done, right? You know, the old cliche that, oh, 80% of businesses fail. I think it's, uh, I think it's more like 99. And the truth of the matter is, is that hardly anyone takes the time to write down their goals, both business and personal. You know, it's a half of 1%. Of the half of 1% that takes the time to write down their goals, business and personal, probably 50% of that, they never look at the goals once they write them down, which is odd. And then of the folks that do write them down, that do look at them and do hold themselves accountable and measure to them, they do unbelievable things. Not because they have more talent than someone else. They just have a roadmap. Back to your question, I mean, you have core values of which you're going to set up the organization. And we had those as well. And there were certain values that we had when we started. And you only have four people. Well, it's pretty easy to stick to your values when there's four people to uphold self-accountable. Right. And when you get upwards of four, five, six hundred, then you got to make decisions. Am I going to chase down this road and forego mm, a couple of those culture values that have been important, but I can really get a lot further this way. And the, the compass, the, the true north of the equation is, is when you are willing to forego something that looks shiny to maintain the culture and the environment that you created. 
And it, it will happen all the way along your path as it has along ours because we were very verbose about what was important to us. We talked about that. And mm -hmm. we had all, you know, a lot of people came up and said, well, you'll never be able to achieve X with those types of values and culture. It's just not sustainable. And we're like, okay, well, we'll deal with that when we get to X. And we push through X and we're like, huh. Well, you'll never be able to get to Y. Well, you'll never be able to get to Z. And the truth matters, we don't know if there is a junction in the road where the way that we want to run this organization, the culture and the environment, if there's a point where the, the, the revenue and the sales get so high where you can't do that anymore. But we know this is that we would rather forego that upper echelon and have the values that we started the organization with versus someone saying you could do X plus 10, 20, 30% more if you scrap those values. And you have to have a team that believes that we're going to choose not to do that. Because I believe when you get that team together and someone says, well, you can't do this with those values, then you get a bunch of people like, I'm sorry, what did you just say to me? I can't, I, I'm sorry, I took that as a challenge. You're saying I can't, with the values and the culture that we have today, that we're very proud of, what you're telling me and everyone else here is that we, we can't do something. Could you repeat that to me? Because that <laughs> kind of stuff just fires up any, any operational or salesperson. Tell me I can't do something. Oh, and you tell 500 people they can't do something because of the culture and the values that they love. Okay. Yeah. But it's a challenge every day. So I got to write it down. So mm -hmm. I got to say it over and over and over. Okay. So you're, you're revisiting it, revisiting it often. Cause Constantly. I, I think where people can get caught is, is they can say, yeah, well those missions and values, they sounded cute at the time, but I was naive when I made those, you know, and then that's when you start to slip and compromise on those things that you once held dear. And so I think that's important for people to, to understand and especially unique for, you know, a company that has so many hundreds of, of employees and, and getting for the most part, everybody to buy into that and be protective. I think it sounds like of, of that um, environment and the mission and, and the values that that company has is pretty cool. Let's put it in terms. Let's do a, a let's talk in, in terms of a metaphor. I wake up, I'm not happy with, the way that I look, and I'm not happy with the way that I feel. So I'm going to write down some goals for a physical transformation. That would be day one of a company. Would you agree with that? Mm -hmm. So I write these down. And that entails, I'm going to, what gets measured gets done. I'm going to go to the gym five or six days a week. I'm going to spend 90 minutes there. I'm going to, spend, I'm going to open up with 20 minutes of cardio. I'm going to do some weights. I'm going to close with 10 minutes of cardio. That is my program. That's how you start your company. Those are your values for this, this particular example. You start seeing some changes in your body and you're happy. You go and you look in the mirror and you're like, you know, instead of six days a week, I'm going to cut back to four. Because once you, once you make that change, once you decide to do that, what's to stop you from going from six to four to three? And then to two. And then it's really hard to kickstart it again. My point is, is that it is incredibly difficult to maintain a culture and environment of an organization. It takes work. It's like a marriage, right? It takes a hundred and takes a hundred percent of each person every single day. And if you and I are married and I don't feel that you're giving a hundred percent, 
my national, my natural inclination. Look, Taylor's not giving hundred percent today. I'm going at 80. Mm. He's, I think he's at 85. I'm going at 84. That's the tit for tit mentality that we live in. The truth of the matter is, is that all that, that just creates a downward spiral, downward spiral. You never can let up. The reason that you're getting in shape, the reason that you're seeing the results is because you documented it, you're following the plan and you're executing the plan. So who's to say when you start getting the results that you want, you lay off. All right. I, I, I mean, look at Tom Brady. Mm-hmm. He probably has just as big of, if not more of a work ethic at his age than does a 21-year-old young man coming out of college. Mm-hmm. Does he say I've got, what's he got, six, seven? How many Super Bowl rings he got? Did he just win seven? However many he's got. He's got a boatload, more than one hand, yep. can hold. I've never heard him say, I've got six, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take Tuesdays off. Right. What does he do? He doubles down on Tuesdays. The natural tendency when you start achieving success is to lay off. True success comes when you start achieving it and you put the pedal down harder. Mm. You maintain the culture and the environment. Because once you let it go, where do you stop? Yeah, so there's two different approaches. You can, you know, you look in the mirror after you've started a, a workout regimen and you're like, yeah, I like those changes. So I can probably slide a little bit. Or some people are the opposite and they're like, man, I wonder what I'd look like going seven days a week. Yeah. And so just considering that, I think, you know, as you're making these decisions, just saying like, is this actually the smart thing to do right now? Discipline. Have I talked myself into, yeah. Discipline. Yep. So what are you, um, what do you find in fulfillment in now? I know that your role has changed. You're still involved with the company, um, but it's in a different way. Are you maintaining a zest that you probably had in your previous position? I mean, my, my job, my job as a CEO, as a chief executive officer, was to create and hold the vision for the company. That's the CEO's job, create and hold the vision for where this organization is going. The president's job <clears throat> is to put the metrics and process behind the vision of where the organization is going and accomplish the vision. That's the deal. My successor, Gene, is... He's a lot smarter than I am. Uh, so he has incredible metric and process. Insatiable appetite for vision. So when you put those two together with the right team around him, uh, it, it's going to be phenomenal. My job as chairman is to communicate with Gene, and talk about obstacles, because it's not easy. I can't get in the way. When you're out, you're out. Right. I, I can't, he can't have a meeting with somebody, then I come in on the tail and say, how is this? That, that's like having two brides, right? Doesn't work out so good, right? So my job is to support him. We talk about his challenges openly, and he's got to make his mistakes. And when he does, we talk about those, and how do we make them again? So that's really a supportive role for him, right? We have metrics behind that. On the flip side of it, with the Bearman testimonies that we talked about back in 2018, I mean, the, the Lord is... I mean, he's just blessed us, blessed us with abundance of individuals around the country wanting to hear that message that we bring about through the bear man testimony and my struggles. I mean, the bear is a metaphor. Everybody's got bears in their life. Um, I don't have a problem talking about the mistakes that I've made. Um, and I've made, a, I've made a ton of them. And I think 
what resonates with people around the country is that when I share, I don't share, I don't speak from a perspective of <clears throat> don't do this or don't do that. I see people lean in at, at churches when I start talking about where my life has been. And then all of a sudden I'll see somebody over here lean in and be like, I know when I start talking about drugs and alcohol, boom, I'll see them lean right in. They're like, wow, this guy's going to admit that I'm leaning in. And I talk about, you know, divorces and somebody like, this guy's going to actually go there and talk about the <laughs> mistakes he's made and how it was his fault and what he's done. They lean in. People resonate with that. And it's amazing to watch people's hearts open up and then talk about a relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then the Holy Spirit does the rest of the work. You just, you know, my biggest thing is staying out of the way of what God wants to do. He doesn't need me to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Doesn't need me at all. He can accomplish anything he wants. He chooses to use me because I am a vessel to get the word out and I do my best just to stay out of the way. Right. And people can learn through the things that I've done and to see the number of individuals that accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We are getting busier. We, you know, we had 37 bear man testimonies got postponed when COVID hit and all those are coming back online. Um, and it, I, I couldn't be more excited. And it was really a quite, we couldn't, it was hard to manage both the organization and the testimonies. And it was a period of my life where I can't think of anything better to be doing. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody steps forward and gives their life to Jesus. All heaven sings and bells go off. I mean, it's just, and I just see the band striking up in heaven. That's what I envision. Mm-hmm. And if I can spend the rest of my life getting people into a position where they make that decision for their life, there's, I can't think of any better way to wake up every day or go to bed at night. Yeah, I suspect you will be <laughs> spending the rest of your life doing that. Um, I think the the path has been set for that. So uh, what else have you been into as far as um, adventures? I know another like our last episode, you talked in um, quite a bit of detail about how heading to the mountains um, and and finding some solitude there is what really recharges you. Yeah. And so has that approach um, changed at all as you kind of give up uh, certain responsibilities? Is that recharge still, are you finding it still really necessary or is it, is it look different? Is it more like a vacation now? No, it's um, no, it's a, it's a recharge. I think everybody recharges their batteries different. My my daughter, when she was younger, used to go into her bedroom, shut the door, her dolls would come to life. And I don't know what was going on behind those doors, but everything came to life. Man, she'd spring out of there, recharge, like you just plugged her in. Me, I, same thing, I go to the mountains. I feel myself every single day. It just takes a little bit of a bar off of the battery. And everybody recharges differently. And for me, being in a cha- very challenging environment, I know it kind of sounds weird. A lot of people say, well, you know, to recharge, why don't you just go to a five-star hotel and get, get room service and sit by the pool? And I think that that's fantastic. But for me, I want to put myself in a position in life to do incredibly difficult things. 
And there, there is nothing more difficult for me as a man than to stand in front of a room, number one, and talk about the mistakes that I have made to resonate with individuals in the room. That's difficult for me, for me. And number two, harder than that for me is to stand in front of a room and ask someone to come up front and give their life to Jesus because the devil just immediately appears on your shoulder. You don't want to do that. Let me tell you why. Nobody's going to come forward. Nobody wants to hear you. And when nobody comes forward, they're going to be looking around. They're going to be thinking, you're a fool. You're going to be embarrassed. And you are going to be the mockery of this room. And the devil, man, just screaming in my ear. Every single time I'm about ready to let the Holy Spirit just allow someone to get out of their chair and accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That is one of the most hard, it's one of the most challenging things that I've ever done. And I, it doesn't matter if it was the first time or now. I can't remember how many times I've done it. It's still hard because the devil never quits. Never. It just gets more boisterous in my ear. It's my point of going back to why do I go to such faraway places is because I don't want to go somewhere where I have comfort. That's not where I recharge. I want to go somewhere that is basically so uncomfortable that it brings some peace to what I'm doing on the stage so it's not as difficult as I make up in my mind that it is. Oh, okay. That's why I work out six days a week. That's why I tell my trainer, if this is not the hardest part of my day, then we're not training hard enough because I don't want to ever leave this gym and have something happen to me where I can say that was more difficult to overcome than working out with you. And people think that I'm, I'm crazy. They think that that's just messed up. You know, and, you know they're probably right. <laughs> but if I'm going to stand in front of people and ask them to give their life to Jesus, it, it will probably never be easy because the devil is just not going to say, you know what, the heck with this guy, just let him work for the Lord full time and leave him alone. It doesn't work that way. Because if he doesn't get you, he goes after your wife, goes after your kids. He just tries to jack with everything that you have. And that's not easy yet. It'll never be easy. But when I get back from hunting, we'll talk about Tajikistan, other side of the world. Most of my friends never even heard of where I was. I'll be on stage in a couple of days asking people about a relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's hopefully not going to be harder than as bad as I felt at 15,000 feet of elevation hiking up a mountain in the Pamir Mountains. Mm -hmm. That's a long answer to, it's a really jacked up way of recharging your batteries. <laughs> so you, you know, you head into the mountains for say, you know, close to two weeks and you're kind of beaten and battered from travel and mm -hmm. the time in the mountains, the, the elements that are things you're not totally used to. But then when you come back, you're more resilient somehow. So you're more beaten down, but you're more resilient. All the clutter is gone. Yeah, that, that's that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, so let's talk about then this this most recent hunt. So I, I you had told me, hey, I'm going to Tajikistan, and I kind of nodded my head. I was like, okay, um, I'm sure I don't know. I couldn't locate <laughs> that for you on a globe. Um, so just to kind of tell people about where that was and, and what the environment was like, then we can talk more specifics too. Yeah, Tajikistan... Uh, the specific hunt uh, was was there. Were, there were three three animals that I was going after. Uh, one of which has been on a, 
my goals, my personal goals for 15 years. 15 years I've looked at this goal. And every year they would go by, I just feel myself, some, day, some years you get closer, some years you get further away. Some of the years you take two steps forward, some of the years you take four steps backwards, right? That's life. That was the Marco Polo. That animal resides in, in this particular hunt in the in the Pamir mountain range, which Pamir is Tajik for rooftop of the world. Ah. For several mountain ranges come together. You got Tajikistan, Kajikistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and China. Those mountain ranges all come together. It's the highest, basically, plateau in the world. And that's where this species lives. It took 15 years to get in a position mentally, physically, financially to be able to make that check mark. And while we were there, there's uh, the second species was a, a Bukharan Markor uh, and then and a, a Pamir Ibex. Tajikistan is, for lack of a better, it's on the other side of the world. Mm. You fly from the United States to Istanbul, Turkey. And then from Istanbul, Turkey to Dushanbe, Tajikistan. And then from there, you're in cars or helicopters, um, hunting anywhere from 3,000 feet above sea level to 13 to 16,000 feet above sea level. Talk about that, the sea level aspect of it. Um, I know that you had said it took some special preparation to kind of prepare your body to be at, at um, heights, heights like that. So what was that like? Planning and preparation. You know, I saw my doctor, um, you know, I live at Houston, Texas. I mean, we're sea level basically. Mm -hmm. um, so in seeing my doctor, a specific workout regimen to get my lungs in a position, you, you can't prepare for 15,000 feet when you live at sea level. You can, you can get a hyperbaric chamber and stuff like that. There's a couple of medications that you, that you can take, uh, to get ready to go to altitude 48 hours prior to altitude. There's a medication that you take up there with you in case you get altitude sickness um, and all the wheels fall off. Uh, but it's just about being ready physically and ready mentally because your mind wants to quit before your body um, quits. Your body can go a lot further than your mind says it can. Mm -hmm. So are you willing to push yourself in a controlled environment the gym or wherever it is you work out, are you willing to push yourself beyond what your mind says that you can do? That's phase one, because when you're climbing up, the mountains don't care if you come in shape. You do, right? So you got to be able to go beyond what your mind says you can go beyond, which gets you in a position when you get to altitude. I mean, there are times, you don't even want to tie your shoe. You're so tired. You look down at your shoe and you're like, I'll just walk on my shoe untied all day. <laughs> then you think, well, if I trip, I'm going to fall 2,000 feet to the bottom, so I'm going to have to tie my shoe, right? Um, that's just planning, preparation, and I think 99% of that hunt is all mental. Can you survive 15,000 feet? Absolutely. Can you get sick? Absolutely. I did. I got bronchitis and a severe upper respiratory infection. So then you got two choices. You are at 15,000 feet. You are in the Pamir Mountain Range. You are not leaving. You do not have transportation, and there's a snowstorm. So you're going to be sick and lay in the house, which is a cinder block room, basically. Or are you going to be sick and hunt? That's, that's the decision you get to make. Hmm. They don't care if you get out of bed. But you're going to be sick either way. Right. And you're going to feel bad either way. So we just, just deal with it. Mm -hmm. 
So were there different, um, you talk about the cinder block huts, were there different kind of base camps set up that you would then go out from? Were you spending nights away from that, from the, that hut or in camping in tents at all? Or what was that like each day you were going out? We actually got lucky. Great question. The answer to your question is we would come back to our base camp. There were about 12, 13 men out there that, that helped support the hunt and were looking for animals. There was a location about four hours away that we were going to go to. That was like an old, it's like a, a, like a miner's cabin. No heat, no water, no nothing. Uh, just basically shelter. But we weren't able to go there uh, uh, where they had spotted some really big Marco Polo rams because they got six feet of snow <laughs> before we showed up. So we were in, the, in this location where we actually had a, a permanent shelter to go back to. And, you know, this is not like home. It's, I use the word shelter is that you're just glad to have a wall and a roof. Um, but we would go out from that every day, hunt, and then come back in the evenings. Okay. What time were you, were you heading out? Were you, so you're going out before dark, before animals are active, and then doing kind of a spot and stalk type of hunt? It was all spot and stalk. Um, you would, you would, the, the, the pier, the, it's, it's really, it's flat land in between these giant mountain ranges. So you just basically are driving around on the tundra in uh, old Russian Jeeps because uh, Tajikistan was controlled by Russia mm-hmm. prior to the Iron Curtain coming down, I think through 1974. Um, and so a lot of the equipment that they're using is still old Russian model Jeeps. You just are driving around. And when you stop on a location, you pull out your spotting scopes and you just glass the mountains from a couple of miles away, analyze the animals. And if it's worth putting a stalk on, you grab your gear and you just start walking up. Okay. What are, what are the, so the glassing, um, you know, I have a friend who I was asking him, he, he's, um, out of all my friends, he's probably the most into hunting. And so I was asking him, Hey, do you have any questions, you know, that you want me to ask on your behalf? So he was sending me some stuff and, um, he spot and stalk hunts in Michigan just because he, he can't sit still. Now he, he admits he's not super successful at it. We know that Michigan's more suited for, um, kind of sitting in a deer blind, but, um, when you're pulling out uh, the spotting scope, how long are you usually sitting in one spot and just peering at the mountains trying to find an animal? You can be there for 30 minutes. You can be there for five hours. Mm-hmm. So just various. A, these, the men that you are with, you're, you're kind of your, you have a main guide and then you have men, many men that are working with this guide. <clears throat> these guys can, can spot a gnat a mile away. Mm-hmm. They know what they're looking for. So you'll see the animals up in the mountains and there wasn't a tremendous amount of snow this year. So they were up high snow. The snow brings the animals down to the flatlands where they can graze but without a lot of snow. They can stay up high, mm-hmm. which was good for them. Bad for me because to get them, you had to go up. Right. And they stay up high because they're safe up there because they're constantly being chased by wolves. Okay. That um, was my question too. Yeah, so, so there are natural enemies oh, there. Oh yeah. They, these, Everything, look, everything up there, I mean, a wolf has to eat or it dies. Marco Polo just needs to be faster than the, his buddy. Mm-hmm. And when they're, when, when they're in those numbers, they go to high places because then it's hard for the wolves to get them in very high places because they need to surround in a place to, to, to ambush them at. Um, so there, there's, a very, there's a method to what these animals are doing. The bottom line is that they're skittish as all get up. And when there's a big group of them and there's that many eyes and they see really well, 
You've got to be very, very cautious. That's why we look from a couple of miles away through spotting scopes. And then if there's, if there's a, a, a big ram in the group that you want to get a really closer look at, man, it's, it's on. You may walk for five, six hours to get up and take a, take a harder look and it's not what you thought it was. Mm-hmm. And you got to walk all the way back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's the other thing that people might not realize is when they're in herds like that, like you said, you're not just trying to dodge the eyes of the ram that you're hoping to shoot. You're having to dodge the eyes of all its friends. And, oh, yeah. you know, how big were some of the herds that you came across? If maybe you had to you guess 20, okay, maybe 20, 25 in, 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 in a large, in a large group, we had a herd that we were looking at and all of a sudden they just started running and we didn't really know why we figured out they were being chased by wolves. And we got through the spotting scope, five wolves on a Marco Polo that they ran down and <laughs> That's how they survive. And hence you ask, why are they so nervous? There's a case in point. Right. We yeah. saw that happen right in front of us. Oh. What, what is the, um, what are some of the kind of cultural things that you might have to maneuver and how reliant are you on? I don't know if there's a translator or what are all the mechanisms that are involved with that? Yeah. I don't speak to Jeek. Um, I don't. Uh, You're retired now, so you can maybe learn. Yeah. <laughs> but the, you know, the master guide, uh, uh, Tamir, uh, with wild hunting, he's from uh, Turkey, and he he speaks he spoke very well, uh, in Tajik was able to communicate. We had a, a gentleman at camp that knew English pretty good, um, where he could talk with Tamir and and do some real decent communication with me, and kind of relay back and forth to some of the gentlemen because some of the guys they did you know they don't speak English period right, um, but that that made you feel. That made you feel comfortable. Um, and just look, a smile is universal. Respect is universal. Courteous is universal. So, I mean, with those three things, we may not speak the same language. We may not understand what each other is saying. But I can sure sense in your body language and the way that you're treating me how this relationship is going. And that that's kind of what, that's just the way that I live it over there. I may mm-hmm. not understand what you're saying, but I know that you know that I'm happy that you're together with me. Mm-hmm. Do you get the sense that, you know, those guides, they they enjoy what they do or is it collecting a paycheck for them? I mean, do they like being out in those hard conditions like that all the time? They love it. I mean, you just sit there, you know, they always say you find out what somebody does when nobody's watching. And when you're together for that length of time, you see what everybody does when they don't think anybody's watching. And these guys, they never, they never stop. They never stop. For them, they love, I mean, if you love doing what you're doing, you don't work a day in your life. And they love doing what they're doing. They can't, they can't wait to go out. They can't wait to talk about it. They can't wait to talk about what you're going to do tomorrow. Where are you going to go tomorrow? They'll sit at the table and argue that my idea is better than your idea in a language that I don't understand, but they're just passionate about it. Mm-hmm. And when you harvest the animal, like when I was actually able to kill a Marco Polo, every single one of those men, by the smiles on their face, was just as happy as I was. Mm-hmm. It was just, it was amazing. And they do it. Year after year after year after year. That's yeah. what makes it so enjoyable for me. Because we've all been somewhere where somebody hates their job. Been to a restaurant where the server hated their job. Mm-hmm. Can ruin dinner. 
But when you have a server that loves their job, they can make a bad dinner. Mm-hmm. They can make a bad dinner good, right? Same thing with same thing with these guys. Yeah. And they loved what they did. That's cool. Well, so you said you had this on your mind for you know, 15 years to get over there. What is the actual um, process of, I mean, is it like an application? Is it a lottery or is this hunt available to, to anybody that can make it happen? This hunt's available to anybody that can make it happen. Uh, It takes a lot of planning and preparation. You got to get, you got to get licenses. You got to get permits. You got to make sure you get the right outfitter. You got to be willing that you're going to do all of this. Are you willing to do something if you come back with nothing? Mm-hmm. Right? Because this is, it's called hunting for a reason. There's no guarantees. They don't say, if you do this, you will get that. That's like saying, I'm going to tell you what the weather is tomorrow. Good luck with that. Right? Um, and if you're willing to do all of that and come home with nothing and say you had a great time, it's available to anybody that wants to chase it. Mm. So you had, you had actually probably, I mean, did you do better than you even expected? You Absolutely. Would? You got the three, the trifecta. Yeah. yeah. We, we actually had a film crew out there with us. <laughs> and the mistake that we made was naming the film overcoming. Because I think when we named the film overcoming, the Lord made sure that we had to overcome everything. <laughs> it's like, well, you know, maybe next time we'll name it abundance. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, everything that could go wrong did go wrong kind of Murphy's law, um, but true to form. I mean, look, life is about overcoming. Everything in life is difficult. Everything. Marriage is difficult. Kids are difficult. Work is difficult. You have great days, you have bad days, but the bottom line is that life is hard. And you have to overcome. And that's the whole premise of us putting this film together is to really talk about, you know, what, what is it? Uh, uh, Jesus doesn't promise. Smooth passage. Smooth passage. I know calm passage. He promises a safe landing. Yeah. Right. You got to overcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How far are you willing to go before you quit? I love pushing myself to a point where every Bone in my body wants to quit. Where you could say I quit and nobody would blame you for quitting. But as it came to fruition and many times on that mountain, once you quit, you never get the chance back. Mm. You can't unquit. When you quit, you quit. Mm. And I'm so afraid of doing things where I quit that I will purposely put myself in a position just so I can get to a point of where I really want to quit and then not quit because it just gives me just a little bit more credence. Okay. Let's push a little harder, Mm -hmm. a little harder, a little harder. Exercising that muscle. Exercising the, just don't quit me. Yeah. Uh, let's talk, let's talk more details about the, the hunt. So I was actually at your place when you were packing for this trip. And you were leaving, I think you left right in the middle of the, the bad weather in Houston, mm-hmm. right? So the, mm-hmm. just the totally um, unexpected weather conditions yep. for Houston and you were, you were traveling out of the country. Um, 
what kind of gun were you using calibers, different, different stuff like that for the people that might nerd out over that? I was, uh, I'm shooting a Gunworks. That's a, a manufacturer. Seven LRM. It's a seven, uh, long range Magnum. Um, it's specifically made for this, this, you know, rugged, rugged hunts. Um, and it's just, you know, it's, you can go buy a brand new gun that can do anything you want, but you got to practice with it. Mm-hmm. I shot over a hundred rounds downrange getting prepared for this hunt. Um, and then still, when we went up there, I had all kinds of problems. My equipment didn't work. I wasn't doing the same things that I had trained myself over and over to do. You have to, you have to get, you got to get over that because what you have to be able to look through your rifle and have the full confidence that you're going to be able to accomplish what it is you, what you're aiming at. Cause these things are four to 650 yards away. And that was difficult for me to overcome there would have been impossible had I not practiced so much at home. Right. So when you're, so did you harvest all three of your animals from about those distances between four and six fifty? Yep. The, uh, the Bucaram Markor was just under 400. The Marco Polo was just under 500. And the, uh, uh Premier Ibex was 625, 630 yards. Okay. Longest shot I'd ever made. So I'll tell listeners about, so I've harvested two deer in my life and this is Michigan hunting out of a, out of a tree stand. And the thing I guess that people might not realize is when you, when you get this opportunity to, to harvest an animal, you might, this, this thing might come out of nowhere. And, and then you have to make this decision of, am I actually calm enough to take this shot? And if I take the time to calm myself down, is it going to be too late? And so that's, I think, one of those battles that hunters have of like, okay, I, I can take this shot right now, but my breath really isn't under control. My heart's racing. Uh, maybe I don't have it, you know, supported. I haven't supported the rifle properly or whatever it is. Um, and so I'm making those calls, you know, maybe from 75 to 100 yards where where, where I have the crosshairs. Um, I'm putting the crosshairs right basically on where I want to hit the deer. I imagine you're going through all those things, but then you're also having to aim higher, right? I mean, when you're taking those shots, are you even, do you even have the crosshairs on the animal? Good question. For the, for the, uh, uh, the premier Ibex at 625 yards, you dial in what we call the dope. I get the dope stands for data on previous engagement, if I'm not mistaken, which means you, you get your range, you get your altitude, which affects, you know, more air, less air at higher altitude, more dense, more, more density at, at, at lower air, uh, lower sea level. Bullets going to fly faster. All of those, all of those factors you have, you have that in a, either a, 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 a kind of a, a range finder that takes all those things into consideration, but you better have a backup card where you can get all your ballistics, your, your muzzle speed, your ballistic coefficient C, all of those things on a piece of paper. Hmm. So when nothing works, which the computers don't like to work at that altitude, you can always go back to your sheet of paper, which tells you at 600 yards, you need to dial X number of uh, minutes of angle um, to make sure your trajectory is right. Number hmm. one. And then number two, what's the wind doing? Our shot at 625 yards, we had a, we had a substantial right to left wind. 
and I was holding between four and five minutes of angle. Well, one minute of angle is one inch per hundred yards. Okay. Okay. So at 600 yards, I'm almost at four minutes of angle. That's 24 inches. <laughs> at five minutes, I was between four and five minutes of angle on four or five MOA at 625 yards. That's between 24 and 30 inches. So this animal was facing to my right. The wind was blowing right to left. My crosshairs weren't even on the animal's face. So I just, you completely have to, I have to not look at the crosshairs. I have to stare straight at the MOA, the minutes of angle that I want to hold for the wind. I don't dial for wind. I hold for wind. Okay. And trust what your rifle is going to do. Trust that you've got the right dope dialed in. Trust your castrol, which you're measuring your wind angle. And it was true. Hmm. And you, you put a good shot on it. Yes, right in oh, his tracks. Man. Yeah, it just seems so, um, you know, counterintuitive, particularly for, for someone like, like you said, you were spending a lot of time at the range and prepping for, for shots like that. Um, you know, it just seems so counterintuitive to be like, all right, I'm not on the animal, and here I am about That's to pull the trigger. That's why I could trigger. not stare. You couldn't look at the crosshairs. Yeah. Because your mind would instinctively want to bring your crosshairs right. back. Well, I mean, 30 inches, you're out of the kill zone. And you might as well not even pull the trigger. If you don't trust your rifle, you better not pull the trigger because you just have a higher propensity of wounding the animal. And there's nothing mm -hmm. worse than that. I mean, it doesn't work out good for you as a hunter and you've just wounded an animal. Mm -hmm. And shame on you for doing that. If you're not comfortable and you don't feel that unequivocally you have a very high probability of killing the animal, then I just don't pull the trigger. Mm -hmm. and to your point earlier about... <laughs> rushing through the cadence, you have a process that you go through. That's what practice does. Free throws. Look what Kevin Durant does every time he shoots a free throw, right? Mm -hmm. Does that little... Yeah, a little shake. I'm sure it means something, but he de he never deviates from it. It doesn't matter if it's the beginning of the game, middle of the game, end of the game, or triple overtime. Same thing every single time. Mm -hmm. You will never get him. You will never walk up to Kevin Durant and say, hey, let's skip that. We're in a hurry. He's not going to do it because that's his process. Same thing with a rifle. And if you can't go through your process then don't make the shot. That's my rule. And you got all kinds of people around you. Hurry, it's going to get away. You're mm -hmm. missing the window, the this, the that. You got to shut the noise off. Just like, sure, Kevin Durant, using our example, shuts off the crowd noise. He doesn't look at the guy behind the basket, you know, waving the whatever he's waving, right? He's got a cadence that he goes through. And if you can't get the shot off by going through your cadence and the animal gets away, then kudos to the animal. Animal one, no problem. I'll see you tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's ethics involved in that in terms of, you know, making a shot that's not going to wound the animal outside of just the ethics though. Talk about like what it would mean to um, make a bad shot on an animal. And maybe it, it goes over the, over the peak of that mountain it was on. It, and then the, the calls you're having to make of like, okay, are we going to track this thing? How long are we going to track this thing before we think that maybe it survived or what is, what does all that look like? What well, trouble are you saving yourself by making a good shot, essentially? Well, number one, even when you do feel you're going to get a good shot, sometimes you make a bad one. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you, you know, a good example. When we were in Tajikistan in, in the Pamir Mountains and I shot my Marco Polo, it wasn't a great shot. It was a little bit further back in the midsection than I wanted it. It was getting dark and we were losing daylight fast. And the last thing that I saw on my scope was that animal crest the mountain and go on the other side. Now, 
people that were watching the animal through the spotting scopes said it was, it was a kill shot, but just not right now. Mm. Meaning that the animal was going to be out overnight. Was it going to get attacked by wolves? What, what was going to happen? How far was it going to go? You don't know. So I wounded an animal, <clears throat> which is, is horrible. And I laid in bed all night long thinking, I waited 15 years for this opportunity. And I thought I made a good shot. I just didn't. And I laid in bed and I stared at my ceiling all night. Now everybody says, this will be okay, it'll be okay. It's not okay. Because I, I, it was the worst night of the entire trip for me. I just lay there at the ceiling, couldn't wait for daylight. Mm-hmm. Sun came up. We went off to uh, <clears throat> go look for uh, some ibex because I'm not. Uh, I'm in good shape. I can't climb to the top of that mountain. Mm-hmm. I physically could not make it to the top of that mountain. But the guys that we hunted with, they're like, "Man, we got you. We got you. We're going to the top. We'll find this thing." And at eleven or eleven thirty in the morning, we got back in our jeep. <clears throat> One of the guys used the sat phone and called our guy in the jeep. Man, we got it. Yeah. You tell Mr. Van Sanders, we got it. We told him we had it. And it was, I went from not sleeping at night to just screaming like my 12-year-old boy just beat me in a game of horse. <laughs> it was it was euphoric. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it really is like a team effort. You have to oh. all be on the same page. And I would never got that Marco Polo without those guys. If those guys didn't love their job, why would they want to walk up 2,000, 2,200 feet on top of a mountain for me? Mm-hmm. Because they cared. They wanted, they knew how I would feel when they found it. Yeah. Because yeah. they had felt that way before. And true to form, man, I, 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 I promise you, I picked each one of them up when I gave them a hug. <laughs> it was just a feeling you can't, you can't describe. Mm-hmm. When you're looking at, um, you know, a ram that you would like to like to take, what what are you looking for? Like, because you said sometimes there's herds of animals, there might be twenty or thirty, and I don't know what um, what it looks like in in terms of if one big ram has a harem and they're they're controlling, you know, twenty uh, females, or if there's some other bulls or yeah. rams mixed in. How yeah, do you it decide? Depends on, it depends on the time of year, right? You got bachelor groups, then you have the rut, where it's all all men for themselves, right? Mm-hmm. And then at the end of that, <clears throat> they'll come back together. That's where you've got to have the right outfitter. You've got to have the right master guide. You have to have somebody that has looked at thousands and thousands and thousands of these animals. And they got to make the right decision. Because truth of the matter is, for a guy from Texas, all the Marco Polos look big. Mm-hmm. All of them look really big. These guys have the ability to discern from two miles away. How big is it? Within a quarter of an inch, mm. two miles away. They can nail it to within your fingernail, from two miles away. And whether or not you're going to put a stock on, mm. that's the trust. So I'm trying to think of, you know, I did an episode um, with that friend that I had mentioned leading into deer season in Michigan. And I had tried to share with people too, like the feeling that I had when I first, um, when I first harvested my first deer and it was like, it was a totally natural feeling that I couldn't have predicted. And, and it's really hard to, I think, explain to someone that, um, you know, a doesn't hunt, but maybe also B doesn't really support hunting. And so 
how are you still able to get like so excited about something when you've had, you know, a lot of experiences in crazy, amazing places, putting stocks on wild animals that most people couldn't imagine? Yeah, I mean, it's like saying I've got, how many brothers do you have? Four. That's like asking your mom, how do you get excited for number five? Is he just number one? Mm -hmm. Right. It's the passion that you have. The second that I don't feel that as passionate about a Marco Polo or a whitetail or anything that I'm going after is the second that I won't do it anymore. That you just, you, it, 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 it's, it's, it's not replaceable and it's not about killing the animal. That's the trophy. It's about the pursuit. Sometimes when I go on these hunts, I'm sad when the hunt is successful because it means it's over. Mm -hmm. I hunt archery whitetail all the time. More often than not, I never even get a shot to fling an arrow at a whitetail. They're smarter than me in the woods, which is perfect. Because when I do kill one and I am successful, it means it's over. Right. It's kind of like Christmas. You know, Christmas, it starts, you know, you start like after Thanksgiving. Now it starts like, you know, Halloween. <laughs> but when Christmas comes, if you were to ask everybody, how are you feeling right now? They're like, well, you know what? It's, I'm kind of sad it's over. Mm -hmm. It's the same feeling that you have when you're hunting. I love the pursuit. That's what it's all about. For people that just say, oh, it's just about the, the head and the kill. I mean, I, I'm not saying that's right or I'm not saying that's wrong. But it's about the preparation. It's about the fact that these animals, you're in their turf, especially with a bow. Mm. And they're a heck of a lot smarter. There may be guys out there that are really, really good at what they do. I'm not one of them. Right. And these whitetail get to jump on me all the time. And to go to Tajikistan, this far away of a place, with an animal that is constantly being chased by wolves, that has never, in all probability, never seen a human before. But when they do, they're like, mm, I'm not liking what I'm seeing. And they go prancing off. I slammed the car door one time, the Jeep getting out while we're spotting and stalking. We were about a mile and a half away. I just shut the door. Just wasn't thinking. They were gone. Mm. And I had 10 guys looking at me like, like, yeah, sorry about that. And <laughs> we were done. It was that, that, that section was over. Mm -hmm. That to me, that's the challenge. Yeah. I don't know if you um, follow Steve Rinella. He actually, um, he's a big hunter conservationist and he was born in Michigan. Actually, he has his own show meat eater and <laughs> it's on Netflix and he does such a great job just narrating kind of the emotions, you know, throughout his hunting yeah. trips and he has a crew following him. And he, he always talks about that kind of struggle between, I, I'm sure you've heard the quote, like don't turn down, you know, say a buck on the first day that you would shoot on the last day or whatever. But what I love about his show is he's always like, yeah, in some, in some cases that's true. He's like, but once I shoot that, that animal, like the next peak that I crest, I'm not like as excited about what might be there, you know? And so he almost, most of his shows are maybe not most, but a lot of his episodes, you watch him and you're like, he didn't get anything because he was just, he was just enjoying being out there and, and enjoying the process really. And so I, th I hope that's something that more people can realize and something that I've come to appreciate, you know, even just hunting for my little tree stand in Michigan is pretty yeah, there, cool. There's a quote in an old sheep book that I have for the uh, grand slam of sheep where a gentleman said, you know, and I, I won't get his quote right, but it's so true. 
If you go sheep hunting, one of two things will happen. You will never go back to those mountains again in your life. Or you will never be able to get enough of it. Mm. There is no in between. And he's absolutely right. Because if that is not something that you truly passionately love, you will never go back. But if it is something you will love, you will never get it out of your veins. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you'll kind of probably learn almost immediately when you step out of that vehicle. Oh, Do I want to come back? <laughs> yeah, you're you're gonna know in like first ten minutes. Yeah, yeah. So so what's next? Um, I know, and I'd love for you to give a plug for Northern Michigan because you have some exciting stuff happening up yes, there and building yes, a house. Yes. Um, yeah. Explain a little bit about I guess what. I know you grew up in Michigan, but why does Northern Michigan have a, have a piece of your heart? A lot of my listeners will appreciate hearing that from you. You know, there's obviously you're always fond of where you grew up, um, growing up just outside of Bay city and Unionville there, Unionville Seabury high school. But I've looked for, Oh my gosh, Liz and I look for 15, 16 years as a piece of property to build a home on. <laughs> And it's so funny. It's like, well, I grew up in Michigan, so I got to find, I got to find something somewhere else. Oh my gosh. We looked at Montana, Colorado, everywhere. And the truth of the matter is, is that why do we look someplace other than where we go every year as a family to recharge for vacation? And I just, the Lord put upon us this piece of property just outside of Traverse City in Leland and it's kind of like when we designed our home, I told the architect, I said, I don't know what I want, but I'll know it when I see it. Mm -hmm. And the second I stepped on that piece of property and the, and the view and I was like, no, this is it. And yeah. it's, it's just been a fun journey. I love the people. I'm a little biased. You know, I'm from Michigan. Mm -hmm. um, I can't, I can't wait. I mean, the Lord has blessed me beyond what I deserve. And I can't wait to be in a position to have my children experience Michigan. And in particular, I don't know if you could call it Northern Michigan, Traverse City. Mm -hmm. You probably know better than I think I we'd adopt. Yeah, we'd take that moniker. For them to experience what is it like outside of just a five-day vacation, really, to really see the culture and the people and friends and new church and all of those things. Um that I know because I grew up there. I've mm. uh, been down in Texas since 1994. But my children will now get to experience that as my wife will. Now my wife's from Dallas. So me getting her to stay up there in January, February, March, it's going to be a stretch. <laughs> I use that word loosely. The answer is going to be no, but um, I'm very, very excited um, to be back home. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's just end with what, I mean, what's, what's turning in your mind in terms of what's next, uh, as far as a hunting trip, what do you got? What do you got planned? Well, we've got, uh, it's, a, this is a year of, of abundance with COVID in 2020. I had several, uh, hunts that were booked years in advance, all of them canceled and they all rolled to 2021. So I had everything that we had booked in 2021 several years ago in 2021, plus everything that was booked in 2020 got rolled to 2021. Oh, it's going to be exciting. So this is going to be an extremely exciting year. It started off with, uh, 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 with Sonora, Mexico for mule deer. And then we, we rolled right into D Tajikistan in, in February after Marco Polo and uh, uh, Ibex and uh, Bukharan Markor. And then in May, 
It's the Alaskan Peninsula for brown bear. And then in uh, August, it's uh, the Yukon for doll sheep. And then in September, it's the Aleutian Islands for reindeer. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, in November, <clears throat> that's whitetail season. You guys mm -hmm. know that in Michigan. That's whitetail season. So I'm, I, I'm, I'm like a giddy schoolboy this year. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, that no, that's awesome that you had that that rollover. And I don't know, it seemed to coincide with maybe at a good time with the retirement and and some more things being freed up. So I don't know. As your nephew, I'm really excited to see uh, just some of the changes that have happened in the last couple months and in a year and. Um, you know, all the cool stuff that you're going to continue to do and, and propping others up as well. It's really Excited. cool to be here. Look, tomorrow's going to come whether you like it or not. So I'm optimistic of what it brings. And I like, I like telling folks is that this is a very good time in my life because I, I'm not the CEO anymore. I work in the, I, I'm not a minister. I'm not a pastor. I'm just a messenger. And now I work for what God wants us to do. And if he has things in our path that he wants us to do, they will be abundantly clear. And our objective is to make sure that our bags are packed and we're ready to go for when we're called. And right now, uh, we're very, very pleased that, that the Lord is choosing to use us and that there's nothing more exciting than, you know, you know, right now, Lord CEO, he says, you get up and go, man, we go. Um, and that's, that's a very, it's very, it's an awkward position for me because I'm used to being in control. I always tell people, mm -hmm. I don't have a problem with control as long as I tell you how I'm going to give up my control. Right? Mm -hmm. Um, it's a paradigm shift for me, but it's a very, it's very soothing. I don't lay in bed at night and worry about what I'm doing tomorrow. I lay in bed at night praying that I hope that the Lord chooses to use me to deliver his message because there is no greater feeling than being a messenger. And that's very humbling. I'm going to have new, we got new business cards made. It's called servant period. This has been great to catch up in this way. And uh, I think people will appreciate hearing from you again. It's been two years and hopefully we'll connect maybe at the new house in Leland. We can do a, Absolutely. We, can, we can join up a little sooner than, than the next two years. Um, so thanks for being here and thank you guys for listening. We appreciate it. And we love you.